Word of God today? Amen. God is such a good God, and I love this time of year when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and the week that leads up to it. And today, as we read in the Word of God, we're going we're gonna to look at Matthew chapter 21. I'll have the Scriptures up here on the screen behind me. I want to also welcome all of you joining us online, joining us on Facebook and YouTube. And today, as we go into the Word of God, I've titled this sermon today, How Palm Sunday Should Affect Us. You know, a lot of times we can get in this time of the year and we kind of go through the, quote, routine. But I really hope we will look at this in a way that is relevant today. Would you just say, I want to be relevant? I mean, don't you want to be relevant to this, this world today? Can I just say that we live right now amongst people that many of them, they don't, even they, though they've lived in America, they really don't know God's Word. You know, they don't know what it is that Jesus came to do. For a lot of people, He's just a, uh, a figure of a religion. But I just want you to know today, Jesus is more than that. And I want to read the actual account of what we call Palm Sunday. And we'll find this in Matthew chapter 21. Let's read verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read out of the New King James Version today. The Bible says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, notice this, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the ground. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed out or followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Would you say this with me today? This is Jesus. You know, as we go through Palm Sunday in Scripture, and then we continue reading, Palm Sunday is a rather crazy type of a beginning 
of Jesus last week. It begins in triumph, and it ends in tragedy. It's inaugurated by a joyful entrance, and it concludes with a deathly departure. And it starts with cheers, it's punctuated with jeers, and for many people finishes with tears. And in this brief message this morning, I want you to see the changefulness of the human heart. And I want us to focus on that because we're all guilty of this at times. We can all be changing in our heart toward God. Sometimes for some people it's an event that happens that is outside of their control, and if they had been in charge, the outcome would have been different. And I've seen this happen in many people that have served the Lord for many, many years, and something tragic happens, and all of a sudden that same saint of God that worshiped God for so many years gets angry with him, and their heart changes towards him. And they stop walking with God. And I just want to warn you, and I want to say to you today, that is a tactic, not of God, but the enemy. The enemy of our soul wants us to walk away from God. The enemy of our soul loved that Judas walked with Jesus for over three years, and yet at the very end betrayed him, and then over his remorse hung himself thinking there's no way out of it. So I want us to understand that even though the heart of man is very changeable, we have an unchanging God in the person of Jesus Christ with matchless compassion. Would you say, thank you, Jesus? And he has an unshakable constancy because God is a God of provision and he will effect for you forgiveness and redemption. All we got to do is reach out to him. Can you say amen to that? The day which set in motion the events that would ultimately lead to Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his trial, and his execution, and which started the clock ticking on the last few days of his pre-resurrection life was a spring Sunday morning, probably around A.D. 33 or thereabouts, and it's known both as the triumphal entry as well as Palm Sunday. And because this event was of such importance, all four Gospels record the event of Palm Sunday. All four Gospels also share a similar description of the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, though they differ in some minor details because if you understand the uh, audience, particularly in the book of Luke, uh, I didn't read out of Luke today, but Luke spoke a lot to Gentiles. So he didn't include a bunch of stuff in there that, that Matthew might have included or Mark might have included or specifically John included for the Jewish hearers. 
So you understand that the Gospels, even though we have four of them, and they, they tell the stories just a little bit different, they're telling them from their perspective and also from their hearer's perspective for us to understand that. How many of you understand what I'm saying? How many of you ever heard this phrase, when in Rome? That's what Paul says. If I'm with the Romans, I'm going to identify with the Romans in order to win the Romans. Jesus did this often when he would be with people that were in agriculture. What would he teach about? He wouldn't teach about, you know, uh, silversmithing. He would speak about planting. He would speak about uh, husbandry, animal husbandry. And so we want to be able to understand this the way that it's being spoken to us. And I want you to also understand this, that... Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, he told the disciples what his purpose was throughout his ministry. So for years, he would repeatedly say, I am coming in order to die. I am coming in order to lay my life down. And he says this, in fact, look at this in Mark 10, 45. The Bible says, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto or to be served. Jesus didn't come to be served. But to serve, that's what minister means. He didn't come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life as a ransom for many. So in other words... Jesus was not ambiguous when Jesus spoke. He was not um, opaque. He would basically say, I will be betrayed in Jerusalem. I will be handed over to the Gentiles. I will be crucified. And after three days, I will rise again. And he said, I tell you this now so that when these things occur, later you will remember and believe. Because how many of you know they just couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't contain that. They couldn't understand that. And the Gospels record that the disciples receiving this revelation in the same kind of spiritual stupor that they had heard much of what Jesus told them. How many of you know that Jesus taught them about faith often, over and over and over? He even involved them in the faith process. He involved them in the faith process several times, when, at least a couple times when he fed people. 5,000 one time, 4,000 another time. He had them pick up the leftovers on purpose. And there were 12 baskets left over on purpose because he had how many disciples? So they had 12 baskets left over, and every disciple had a basket, and he wanted them to see this started out with five pieces of bread, five loaves of bread, and two fish, and now, guys, you're picking up baskets of leftovers. Immediately after that, everybody say, immediately after. They get in a boat. They're supposed to cross the water. Jesus told them, get in the boat, cross the water. I'm going to go up to the mountain to pray. And guess what happens? In the middle of what Jesus told them to do and where Jesus wanted them to go, in between the place where they were and where they were going, guess what was there? Devil, devil showed up. Isn't that just like it is in life? I mean, you get to moving, you get to sailing with God really good, and all of a sudden, bam, 
this happens, and then that happens, and then this happens, and then that happens. And you're like, Lord, where are you? I'm in you. Right? He had given them the authority. He had given them the power, and they were afraid. And Jesus took authority over the sea, and all he said is, peace, be still. Kind of like I can just imagine seeing the devil and going, oh, it's just you. Get out of here. You see, he was following the will of the Father who sent him. And the day came, and this is the day, when he entered into Jerusalem. And that day, church, I want you to know, it came at a high water mark of Jesus' popularity. I mean, he was way up here. He was popular. The Pharisees hated it. He would get a crowd at the drop of a hat. They couldn't hardly get people to follow. And the religious establishment hated Jesus and were determined to find a way to have him killed, but the common people who followed Jesus everywhere he went loved him. Or so it seemed. He healed the sick. As I said, he fed the hungry. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He gave words to the mute. He gave mobility to the crippled. He preached. He even raised the dead. On Palm Sunday, our Lord mounted on a donkey, rode into the city, and the Bible said it was amidst loud acclamations by the crowd. And some of the city's residents, usually numbering in that day around 30,000 people, but probably because of what was going on at Passover time, during that time, it probably had swelled to literally around 200,000 people, if I can just put it in perspective for you. Because of these Passover pilgrims that were uh, all over the place, and they, they would throw blankets, and they threw cloaks, and they threw palm branches before the animal that Jesus rode on. The event was loaded with significance. First, it had been prophesied. We just read that. He did this in order that what was prophesied would be fulfilled. That was actually out of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Let's look at this. We hear this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly, say it again, lowly and riding on a donkey. A colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, why am I saying that? Why am I asking you to say lowly? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever seen a king enter into his city lowly. The crowd cries, Hosanna, meaning, Lord, save us. And with the words of Psalm 118 and verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were recognizing he's the king. He's the one going to rescue us. And he was, just not the way they thought. So, first, it had been predicted by the prophet. Second, our Lord's entry was a political statement. Now I'm going to get to the word lowly. 
In the ancient world, when a conquering king would enter a city after the battle, he rode on a stallion or he rode on something even more impressive. How many of you have ever ridden a donkey? Different ride than a horse. Isn't it? It's a whole different ride. In fact, I remember watching Gunsmoke. I love Matt Dillon's horse. I, I love that buckskin, black-tailed mane horse. And then here, here along comes Festus on his donkey. I'm like, dude, you need to go find a horse. And I can just imagine these disciples scratching their head when he's like, go get a donkey for me. You'll find it. Here it is. If they ask you any questions about it, they'll, I'll take care of it. It's all taken care of. In fact, let me just say this, that uh, Judas Maccabeus, after he had driven the Syrians from Jerusalem 160, in 163 B.C., before Jesus, he entered into the city on a majestic stallion. And the residents of the city came out and waved palm branches when Jesus enters the city on a donkey. When Julius Caesar returned to Rome in 45 B.C., he had a golden chariot harnessed to 40 elephants. I'm trying to draw a picture here for you. But whenever this king came into his city, he entered on a donkey. And not just a donkey, the foal of a donkey. And I don't know if you caught that on that video we watched there, but his feet weren't too far off the ground on the video. That's probably the way it was. And some people would have looked at that and go, what kind of king is this? Yet, they say Hosanna. They worship him. They rip their clothes off. They begin to lay him down on the ground. You know, how many of you would let your nice, I don't know, I don't really buy clothes a lot, so my family, my, my ladies do that usually for us. I don't really know all these brands and all that stuff. I don't even know the brand thing I'm wearing. I just know it's not really that expensive. But let's say I had a, give me a name of expensive clothing, Lauren. Gucci. Okay, Gucci. Yeah, that's even hard for me to say, Gucci. Gucci. So I had, let's say I have a Gucci jacket on. Would I take that off and let Jesus walk on it with a donkey foal? The crowd did. And he, he entered amidst this adulation and this clapping and this shouting and smiles and dancing. And yet, five days later, Everybody say, less than a week. The cheering wasn't there anymore. 
the same crowd began to cry out, crucify him. Crucify him before Pilate's judgment seat. The changeableness of the human heart. The crowd was fickle because the human heart is fickle and untrustworthy. Napoleon and his army were once marching through Switzerland, and they were receiving thunderous applause wherever they went. The crowd shouted, Long live the king! Viva la France! Hail to the emperor Napoleon! But Napoleon was unimpressed. And an aide of his asked him, Isn't it wonderful to hear the roar of the crowds and the love of the people? To which Napoleon replied, The same people that are cheering me today would cheer just as loudly at my execution. You see, what happened is the miracles had stopped with Jesus. The healings had stopped. The cafeteria was closed. Jesus came in peace to save souls, not in war to overthrow Rome. And because of that, the cheering quickly turned to jeering. The human heart is fickle. The Bible says the human heart is desperately wicked. It's beyond comprehension is the biblical indictment. And you dare not trust it for guidance in anything of eternal importance unless it's transformed by the Word of God. See the changefulness of the human heart? It was fickle then. It's fickle now. I mean, we see this in sports. The same people that will just elevate a quarterback on one Sunday You'll hear the cheers. The next week, we'll boo him. Same people. Now, the next event isn't included in some of the Gospels, but Luke's Gospel, upon Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, look at Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. Upon his entry into Jerusalem, even knowing full well what would happen to him there, and about the betrayal of the crowds, we're told by Luke, the physician, that Jesus shed tears of love and grief for the city. Luke nineteen forty one through 44, it says, Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know or recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus wept because he saw the opportunity that was being missed. Jesus wept because the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, who had been looking and longing for their promised Redeemer since the first sin in the garden, had stared that Savior in the face and had declared him insane and demon-possessed and would soon reject him and would soon crucify him as a common criminal 
and would loose a murderer in his place. He wept because their rejection would result in the destruction of Jerusalem, as he's prophesying right here, and the scattering of the people throughout the world. And church, do you know when they started coming back? Over 1,900 years in 1948 when Israel became a nation again. And they've still been coming, and they keep coming, and they keep coming. He said, your enemies will surround you because you did not recognize your day of salvation. You know, Jesus' words came true. Exactly 40 years later, just one generation, the Roman legions under General Titus laid siege to Jerusalem to quell another Jewish rebellion in Judea in August of A.D. 70, after months of encircling, Jerusalem was conquered, and the Romans by now were fed up with the rebellions in that region, and they ensured that it would remain subjugated to Roman rule. And Titus leveled the city. Titus put its inhabitants to the sword, young, old, priest, merchant, man, woman, child, and he exiled the survivors. And the temple was set ablaze. The gold on the ceiling melted in the heat and ran down through the cracks and the stone blocks in the walls. There it cooled, and there it hardened. Following the destruction of the city, Titus gave his soldiers permission to pillage and to keep whatever valuables in the city that they could find. And his men, listen to this, they saw the gold streams hardened in the crevices of the walls of the temple. And they took the building apart, stone by stone, to get the precious metal. And do you know what? When they were done, not one stone was left standing on one another. Just like Jesus said. Oh, Jesus was more than just a figure. He was and is the living God. But Jesus wept on that day, and He wept out of love. He wept because of the sinfulness and blindness of the human heart. And I look out upon our nation today and often feel the same. He wept because of the consequences that He knew were coming upon His people for resisting God and for rejecting His provision of salvation. We've seen the changeableness of the human heart. We've seen the compassion of the Savior. I want you to see the unshakable constancy of God as He provided for our salvation. Well, it becomes abundantly clear through the Gospels. Are you still with me? And especially in Jesus' trials before Herod before Caiaphas and before Pilate, is that Jesus did not accidentally stumble into legal difficulties with the Romans or theological trouble with the Jewish Sanhedrin. Everything the Lord did, I'm going to repeat that, everything the Lord did, He did 
intentionally. Everything he said, he said deliberately. Everywhere he went, he went purposefully. Never at any time was Jesus the victim of circumstances. The second person of the Trinity purposely left his throne in heaven to become a human baby. How how much more helpless can you be than a human baby? Church, a human calf is less helpless than a human or a human calf. Let me get my words right. A baby calf is less helpless than a baby human. They can walk within the day. But his vocation to die began before this. There were many occasions where the devil tried to hinder him from his purpose. He tried during the 40-day wilderness temptation to detour Jesus from Calvary by offering him a crown without a cross. And there's too many people want the crown but not the cross. But Jesus said, if we're going to follow him, We've got to take up our cross, and we've got to die, Paul said, every day. At his baptism in the Jordan River, John the baptizer declared Jesus to be the Lamb of God and would die to take away the sins of the world. But Jesus' vocation to die began before that. 600 years before Jesus' birth, My favorite prophet, Isaiah, spoke in chapter 53 of the coming suffering servant who would die as a sin offering to bring peace and forgiveness to God's people. You see, God would place upon him, the Bible says, all of our sins and punish him in our place. By his knowledge, Isaiah said, my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their sins. The punishment that brought us peace from God was inflicted on him. But Jesus' vocation to die began before that. 1,000 years before Jesus' coming, David foretold the very manner of his own offspring's death in Psalm chapter 22. Read it. Read it, Psalm 22. Just take the day today and read Psalm 22. This is David prophesying what's going to happen to one of his great-great-great-great-great-great-kids, Jesus. He says, They pierced my hands and feet and cast lots for my garments. Not surprisingly, Jesus quoted Psalm 22, verse 1 from the cross. But Jesus' vocation to die began long before that. 
Immediately after Adam and Eve in the garden disobeyed in Genesis chapter 3, God promised a coming sin offering by declaring the serpent would bruise the heel of one of the woman's offspring and by saying also that the offspring would crush his head. But Jesus' vocation to die for our sins began even before that. This blows me away. John sees in the book of Revelation a vision. And in that vision, he said, he saw the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the earth. God already knew what man would do, and he made us anyway. And he gave us a will to choose it. Adam and Eve didn't have to do it. Some people think God is sovereign, and because God is sovereign, he just kind of makes everything happen the way it is. Here's the thing. God is sovereign, but God made man with a free will. You can choose him, or you can refuse him. That's why it's up to you. Today... As I close, the lamb that John saw in Revelation that was slain from the foundation of the world, his cousin John the Baptist, I said earlier, proclaimed him the Lamb of God when he baptized him. That lamb was Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about this. Before one particle was created, from time immemorial, it was in the mind of God to send His Son to die for you. Everybody say me. And die He did. We're going to look at it next week. Nothing in heaven or earth could or would thwart God's provision to save us. Nothing. And the only question of any meaning this morning is, are you saved? Have you received the greatest gift ever given? I titled this, let me read it again how Palm Sunday should affect us. I'm not asking you if you're a church member. I am not asking you even if you're a member of this church. I'm not asking you if you think you're a good person. I'm not asking you if you try to keep the Ten Commandments. The Bible says that all have sinned and that There is none righteous, no, not one. 
And if you doubt Scripture's verdict, watch the evening news, or better yet, do an unflinching, thorough inventory of your own heart. We don't possess the moral power for self-reformation. We cannot turn over enough new leaves or pull ourselves up by our own spiritual bootstraps enough. If we could, Jesus would not have come to die. His medicine for our soul sickness was severe. His suffering, his death, because our disease was so severe and still is. It's fatal, actually. The Bible says the wages, what you get paid for sinning, is death. Think about that. Left untreated, we'll stand condemned before God. The angelic chorus at Jesus' birth said they brought good news of great joy. And I want to give you good news. Jesus himself preached good news. This is the good news, the gospel. It's not that we've got to struggle and strive to be good and hope for the best. How many good works are enough in that system? I just wonder. How do we ever get to the point where we know we've done enough? You can't. And how would we know? You see, the gospel is not an if-then proposition. If you do this and this, then this happens. If you do enough of this and this and this, then this happens. No, it's just a believe, receive. Jesus said, just like you received, give same way. Remember the Lord's matchless compassion. Listen to what he says. He says, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever. Whosoever. I told you last week, the thief, all he did is said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. That man changed his heart. Now, he changed it. This is the good news. The fickleness of the human heart, the devil can try to come in and convince you God doesn't care. If God was so powerful, he'd have done all these other things. Listen, God is so powerful, he could, he could, have, he could have kept man from sinning. But God wanted us to have a will, and that's part of it. God has a, he wants us to have a will. How many of your kids have a will? Hello. Yeah, they have a will. How many of you, they exercise that will in ways sometimes you wish they wouldn't? How many, sometimes they exercise that will and they do things that have hurt you, hurt your heart. Yeah, because they have their own will. And yet God is saying, what I want, I really, really, truly love you. And because I love you, I'm going to give your own will where you can choose me and I'm not going to force you to do it. I mean, God is the ultimate freedom fighter. It's for freedom that he came. And if you are a believer already this morning, the question and appeal to you today is very similar, not just are you saved, but it is this way, are you living for him? You see, if not, why not? Listen to Philippians, in fact, I think we have this, Philippians 2.5. I want you to let this sink down inside your soul. You still with me? I'm almost done. 
let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Another translation says, let the same mind that was in Christ Jesus be also in you. The same attitude, the same life vocation. Maybe not dying on a cross, but dying to self and living to love God, and then secondly, loving others. And it says, let it be just like it was also in Jesus. How many of you think we got a little bit of room to grow? So what was the mind of Jesus? Humility. Obedience. So the exhortation to us is imitation. In fact, do you know what the word Christian means? Little Christs. Or like Christ. There were people that actually saw people who followed Jesus and they were first called Christians in that city because they looked and acted like Jesus. Christ-likeness. What is it that people say when a baby is born? Oh, man, I can see you in her. She looks just like you. Can you imagine God the Father with such great pride looking down upon the people here at Celebration Church and those of you watching online going, Jesus, do you see them? He's like, yeah. He's like, they look just like you. He's like, I know, isn't that cool? Now here's what that means. It means you've been rejected by somebody. means you've been hurt by somebody. means you've been forgiven by God's blood. You see, a lot of times people think following God is just this really great thing, and it is, but the best analogy I could ever put to it, you've heard it a hundred times, but it's like we haven't boarded the love boat where we're just taking this pleasure cruise. We've boarded a battleship and we've got to fight our corner. Clear to the end. Now today you were given, and I want to close with this, a palm leaf shaped into a cross. Now it's great to possess a little cross. It's great to wear a cross. But it's best to pick one up and to follow Jesus every day, carrying your cross, your burden to bear. Church, let me tell you something. The cross, we make them look pretty. That's a beautiful cross. Jesus' cross didn't look pretty. It wasn't fun. It was death. So it's death to self. And I pray that when you see the cross, you see that Jesus died on it. And it's that what makes you, that is what allowed you to come to know Jesus. But when we look at it for ourselves, may we look at this as, Lord, today I've got to die to myself. I've got to get on that cross and die to my what I want to do, where I want to go, what I want to say, what I want to think, what I want to be, and ask you what you would have me be.
I think we need to be a new version of SOS. Sold out servants. Sold out servants. So on this Palm Sunday, before we enter into Resurrection Sunday next week, let's pick up our cross all week. Let's follow the Master today. Let's pick it up because, church, it leads to life. And refusing it leads to death. Would you stand with me today as we close? Take your cross as you as you stand, and let's just raise this to the Lord. Will you take that individually? Sorry, people online, I couldn't get one to you, but you can see this one. Let's bow in prayer, and let's ask this of, of the Lord. Say this with me. Heavenly Father, help me die daily to what I want. And also help me live daily to what you want. Let this cross be a symbol of me dying daily and also me living daily. Dying to self and living to you. And Father, make me aware of those around me that need your love. And help me meet the needs in your power. And in your strength, in Jesus' name, amen. I pray you got something out of that today. Love you guys. God bless you. Next Sunday, we're going to be celebrating Resurrection Day. So join us again at 830 for the uh, breakfast. We'll see you then. God bless.